0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ.
1: Hello, I'm Harriet Vickers and welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, we find out how high blood pressure in adolescence is linked to excess mortality in adulthood.
2: High blood pressure in uh, adolescents and in elderly seems to be uh, quite different.
1: Mm. We talked to John Appleby of the King's Fund about his latest data briefing.
3: Waiting times in the NHS have been an issue for for the public for for many decades. In fact, it can be hard to remember quite how long they were.
1: But before all of that, I've got David Payne with me, who's BMJ's web editor, to tell me a bit more about what's going on on bmj.com. Hello, David. Have you got some news stories for us?
0: Well, not actually news stories this week, um, Harriet. Well, certainly one, but the first thing I'd like to highlight is I don't think we've talked about obituaries before in the podcast. And uh, one caught my eye this week, which is of a guy called Bernard Nathanson. Nathanson was interesting because he um he was a sort of a jewist atheist family and um, he performed I think in his life 75,000 abortions and then became a pro-life campaigner. Um, I mean that's very much linked to the fact that he converted to Catholicism later in life. He uh, did a very controversial film in 1984 called The Silent Scream which he directed and narrated. It was 28 minutes long and it describes fetal development and shows in ultrasound detail the abortion of a 12-week-old fetus by the suction method and uh, this was seized on by planned parenthood as being riddled with inaccuracies and uh, it was just a very interesting life and i i'd certainly recommend readers look at that
1: it's never too late to change your mind then <laughs> Uh, so, so what else do you think's been noteworthy this week?
0: Well, the other thing that caught my eye is a, a very interesting article by Darrell P. Francis, who's a reader in cardiology at Imperial College in London. Um, and he's written a, an, an article called How Many Consultants Should You Invite to a Meeting to Ensure It Will Never Happen? And uh, he's done various uh, calculations and uh, come to the conclusion that if you want to ensure a meeting doesn't happen, doesn't happen uh, involving NHS consultants, that then you would need to invite six along. And he's looked at consultants' contact time with patients and obviously the time they're meant to to catch up on admin and other things and uh, the reason this struck me is because i've been here at the bmj now for three years and i remember before i started that someone that worked here said to me or they love their meetings at the bmj your whole day can be dominated by meetings and having been here for three years i can say with some certainty that that is the case i was just very very um intrigued by this article and i imagine it will apply to doctors all over the world really Mm,
1: right so six is the impossible number
0: it is yes
1: great so what what else have you got for
0: us? Well, my final story to catch my eye was in our news section. It's a story by Andrew Osborne um, in Moscow saying that beer will no longer be classified as a food in Russia. I didn't know that beer was classified as a food in Russia, although having visited St. Petersburg and seeing lots of people drinking on the streets, I can understand why it would be, and certainly when you compare it to vodka. But, um, yeah, the beverage has been traditionally classified or technically classified as a foodstuff and many ordinary russians regard it as little more than a soft drink compared to vodka uh, which they view as real alcohol so i thought that was a very nice little story and it's the bill to to reclassify has passed its first reading in the russian parliament last month and it's got to go through two more readings and get kremlin approval to become law
1: so why the sudden change of heart has anything prompted this
0: question actually um the health angle to this is that the Kremlin was worried about her underage beer drinking and more broadly concerned that the population growth in Russia is being badly stunted um, by the estimated 500,000 alcohol-related deaths each year. So um, mm. every little hope helps, I suppose, and uh, that's why beer is no longer a food in Russia.
1: am mm, glad to hear it's got an evidence base behind it as well. Great. Well, thanks very much for, for coming into the studio. Thank you. Now, Helen MacDonald, assistant editor of the BMJ, talks to the Swedish author of a paper linking teenage blood pressure and adult mortality. Just a quick apology for sound quality. Professor Sandström took time out from his skiing holiday to talk to us from a mountaintop.
4: So we're now joined by Johan Sandström to talk about his new paper, which asked uh, how is blood pressure in young adults linked with death? So before you tell us more about what you did, can you set the scene for us and tell us what we knew about blood pressure already and why this was the next question to ask?
2: Oh, thanks, Helen. We do know um, since uh, decades back that high blood pressure in middle-aged and elderly people is um, linked to a higher risk of dying, and especially in cardiovascular diseases. Mm-hmm. But high blood pressure in uh, adolescents and in elderly seems to be uh, quite different. Mm. Hypertension in the elderly is mainly a disease of the systolic blood pressure being elevated. Okay. It's mostly due to this um, arteries. Whereas uh, hypertension in the young, we know, is mostly a disease of the diastolic blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the vast majority of, of young people with hypertension have an isolated diastolic hypertension. Yeah. These two distinct phenotypes of hypertension may actually be quite different.
4: Mm. I guess it was pretty hard to find a setting where you can have a look at a big group of young people over a, a long period of time who all have blood pressure readings. Um, so tell us a bit about how you actually went about finding a suitable group of people to study, and and what you did.
2: Well, you know that Sweden is actually um, a treasure island for epidemiologists. <laughs> we have so we have so many uh, official registries that everyone takes place in. So uh, this is the the national conscription registry, which has eighteen something year old males, mainly. Okay. This prescription has been going on uh, with very little changes during several decades. And in fact, blood pressure was one of those uh, things that were measured exactly the same during the whole baseline period of this particular study. And we then know that since we have the personal identification number of all these people who have gone through their prescription tests, we knew that we could follow them until their death or until they emigrated.
4: And then what were you watching out for as the kind of outcome of the study?
2: Several studies have looked at relations of blood pressure to cardiovascular events in, in young people. Yeah. Since cardiovascular deaths are very uncommon at, this, at mm. this age, in this particular study, 12.5% only died of cardiovascular diseases. Mm. Um, that's such a minority. So we thought that, that um, to sort of fully unravel the, the, the links between blood pressure and risk, we wanted to look at total mortality first. first okay. event, we looked a little bit... At the, the biggest causes of death, the biggest groups of, of death causes that we could find.
4: So tell us what you what you found. Well,
2: mainly we found that both in terms of population attributable risk and strength of association, we noted that a high diastolic blood pressure was a more important risk factor than a high systolic blood pressure. Okay. And That was the most important thing that we thought.
4: And thinking about our listeners, um, can you provide us with some more clinically tangible numbers and talk us through those?
2: Okay, well, actually, what we, we can do is we can, we can look at table three of this paper. I'm not sure if people listening to this can have their paper in front of them. But
4: if, <laughs> they can get if, it
2: out if, now. They can get it out now. I, I mean, we think that guidelines should be based on numerous papers, not just one, but since we know that there are so few databases of this size and and with such statistical power at this age group, Mm. um, we thought we would do a table specifically for guideline authors. What if you want to look at a specific risk elevation, say a 50 percent higher risk, uh, what uh, blood pressure numbers does that correspond to? We noted that that risk increase was found at a systolic blood pressure of 180 or something like that. and okay, so quite about, high. Yeah, and uh, whereas the 50% high risk was, all, was also found at a diastolic blood pressure of about 90 or higher. So um, the, 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 the diastolic blood pressure risk limit of 90 millimeters of mercury is known for middle-aged and elderly, um, but the, systolic blood pressure, uh, the corresponding systolic blood pressure level of 180 is uh, a little bit higher than we find in middle-aged and elderly. Hmm. Um, Another interesting thing that we found was that the relation of systolic blood pressure to mortality risk was actually U-shaped, so that we found an optimal systolic blood pressure from a risk perspective at about 130 millimetres of mercury. Okay, This actually increased uh, both above and below 130.
4: Um, Talk us through the caveats and sort of limitations that you'd put on on this paper?
2: Well, because uh, the, the sample was, was not designed for research, we do lack a number of important covariates. We mm. did not know, um, for example, how much they were smoking. Mm. However, if blood pressure were uh, in any way affected by smoking, that wouldn't really matter because guidelines, blood pressure guidelines don't really take into account the reason for uh, having a particular
4: blood pressure. And I suppose this is quite a limited um, sample in terms of gender and ethnicity as well.
2: Sorry, those are, of course, the most important limitations that we didn't have any women in this cohort I and mean, the role of vocation, uh, ethnicity.
4: Can you make a stab about what it means for doctors on the ground? I think that
2: the appeal from a couple of years ago to forget about diastolic blood pressure, um, it should be remembered that that was only uh, meant for middle-aged and elderly people mm. and when you find an elevated diastolic blood pressure in a young person, that's that a marker of an increased risk. Today.
4: And what do you see as the next research question? So what do we need to do now to, to take things forward?
2: Well, we do need to, of course, have these results uh, repeated in other samples in other ethnic yeah. and genders and countries. And we also need to dive into a little bit the U-shaped curve of the relation of systolic blood pressure to mortality. We did find that it was driven by a relation of low systolic blood pressures to external mortality causes. Okay. Uh, We we couldn't really subdivide those deaths any further because of lack of power.
4: So you'll need a huge sample for that one. (laughs) Yeah, we would. Well, thanks for joining us, Johan. And, of course,
1: as ever, you can read that paper online, in print, and now on the BMJ's iPad app. Now, Duncan Jarvis talks to John Appleby about his second data briefing.
5: Part of the redesign of the NHS means that many centrally imposed targets are being scrapped. Last summer, the 18-week referral-to-treatment target was abandoned. It was a tough target which initially was set to combat the seemingly endemic long waits that patients were used to in the NHS. In his latest data briefing, John Appleby, chief economist at the King's Fund, takes a look at the numbers. I caught up with him earlier this week to find out more.
3: What we find, we don't. I certainly wasn't expecting in August, the month after the the sort of relaxation of the department's management of the 18-week target, for suddenly to see waiting times going through the roof. But what we've got now are some trends, and we certainly will see uh, some interesting developments over the next, I don't know, six months or so. Um, I, I think we know. I think we'll have to return to this particular measure of NHS performance in, in, a, in less than a year's time to see what's happening.
5: So, the numbers aren't clear yet, so instead we talked about why he decided to look at this, and I started out by asking him about the background to the story.
3: Well, I should start by saying that waiting times in the NHS have been an issue for, for the public for, for many decades, and um, I think probably in, even internationally the NHS is, has been known for its its long waiting times. Um, So one of the issues that I was concerned about with some recent policy changes was what's going to happen to waiting times. uh, And that's against the sort of recent history of a tremendous success in bringing down very long waits, actually. Mm.
5: So how did they do that? How did they shrink the list?
3: It was clear from evidence that, in fact, it was a combination of essentially more money having very tough targets, a sort of political determination to do something about them, and also help to hospitals to help them actually reduce waiting times.
5: Is there any data about how big a, a contribution to that came from the extra cash or the targets or the, <laughs> the help the hospitals got?
3: Um, I think nobody has been able to disentangle that. Um, I, I think one thing we can say is that... It probably took less extra cash and probably less extra sort of activity or work than was expected. Mm. <laughs> and by activity and work, I mean treating more people. But I suspect it's it's a combination more of almost a cultural thing. Uh, first of all, taking the management of waiting lists out of the hands of consultants mm. by and large. <laughs> um, so. GPs then referred to the hospital rather than to Mr Jones or Mr Smith, and work could be allocated a bit more evenly. And even just doing that can reduce the waiting time uh, almost overnight. And I think actually a realisation on the part of managers that something could be done. I think there was a feeling that waiting lists were were somehow an inevitable sort of symptom of a of an NHS or a, a health system which didn't didn't have price as a rationing mechanism and i think simply help to hospitals to help them you know, as i say organize their services in different ways to identify where they had bottlenecks in the system mm. it could be i mean some hospitals found that they they simply didn't have enough operating theater time and that that was creating a bottleneck uh, you know they're getting people into beds and they weren't getting them out of beds and into into the theaters so I think it was a sort of combination of those things, and perhaps less so the money, actually. Um, so but overlaying all of that was the, was the clear political will to do something about it.
5: Sure. So you talk there about the structural changes made. Um, presumably, even if centrally imposed targets are abandoned, those changes are going to remain in place, and, and we won't see a regression to what things were like in the 90s.
3: Yes, no, that's definitely true. Um, so I suppose the, the issue about the target and why it may be an issue that it's that they're not, not as important is that keeping the pressure up probably is a good idea, even when you've, say, reorganized the way you manage your lists and so on. And in fact, something these numbers don't capture is perhaps something that is starting to go on, which is... Uh, even stopping people getting onto waiting lists, uh, which is PCTs, trying to manage their financial situations now. Mm.
1: John, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. That's all for this week. Next week, it's more reforms. The government has backed down on plans to implement competition by price in the new NHS. But what else in the bill should be reworded? We'll be hosting roundtable discussion to find out. Join us then.